This is Nate. Nate became a Christ follower two weeks ago and is still a bit giddy about it. Now he's trying not to do cartwheels in public. Nate became a believer partly because of Kim. Yet oddly enough, Kim and Nate have never met. How is this possible? Well, let's take a look. Kim loved Jesus from an early age, and in college she had a huge impact on her friends. While most of her peers used their college years to, well, experiment, Kim didn't. She remained committed to her faith, and it showed. It especially showed to Lisa, her roommate, who confessed to Kim that she wanted whatever it was that made Kim so strong. Kim shared her faith with Lisa, and Lisa believed. Years later, at Lisa's first real job, she met Thomas. Thomas was hit by a drunk driver when he was 13 and still carried a lot of anger and bitterness. Thomas and Lisa became friends, and it wasn't long before he started going to church with Lisa and her husband. After a lot of studying and searching, Thomas gave his life to Christ. Fast forward a few years. Thomas became a public speaker and was often asked to speak at large events. See, when he became a believer, Thomas developed a new perspective on life. He stopped resenting what had been taken from him and started being thankful for the second chance he had been given. On one particular day, Thomas shared about overcoming hardship and what it means to choose joy. He was so passionate that a number of people were inspired to share a link to his video. The video of Thomas inspired James, too. And if anyone needed inspiration, it was him. James had a ton of issues. He spent most of his life as a passive husband, an absent father, and a horrible friend. That said, no one disliked him more than he disliked himself. But everything changed the night he happened to watch Thomas online. Something clicked and he knew what he had to do. He surrendered his miserable life to someone greater, and he was forever changed. James fought hard to make up for the lost years with his family. And he also began working with young men who were in danger of throwing their lives away. One of those men was Nate. Nate didn't really know his own dad, and he had no real direction in life ultimately bouncing from one bad decision to another. Because of that, he often found himself in trouble with the law. No one had ever showed him what it looked like to be a real man. That is, until he met James. James became the first father figure Nate ever had. He learned about honesty, self-control, humility, and integrity, and where those traits come from. Two months later, Nate publicly declared his belief in Christ. And of course, James was there. Now you can see the connection. Nate was impacted by James. He was influenced by Thomas. Thomas saw an uncommon joy in Lisa, who learned of Jesus from Kim. Kim's relationship with God eventually led to Nate's. Funny how these two people have never met and never will. I don't know. I, I think they meet someday. I, th I think that's one of those things that happens in heaven, you know, where God connects the dots because God has this this plan that he's working and God is always about connecting the dots between people. God loves to do that in terms of bringing people to himself. We have a heart. Our own heart says, I want to be that kind of person that makes that difference, that becomes that link in the chain that who knows where it goes, not just in this generation, but for generations to come. And we know people in our own lives who really need God, and we want to make a difference. But a lot of times we feel like it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Couldn't be part of who we are. 
or, uh, or what we're doing. But actually what we read about today will help us understand this really happens and how we can be a part of it. At least in one way, it will show us a, a unique way to think about reaching out and being able to make this difference. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 3 today, beginning at verse 1. So we continue our series on one. We've had a lot of ones. We'll come up with another one today. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Previously uh, here, we've, we've been studying in chapters 1 and 2. When we were in chapter 2, we read of how in Jerusalem, about seven weeks after Jesus' birth, or Jesus' death, rather, in resurrection, uh, on a festival day called the Day of Pentecost, uh, God did this amazing attention-getting work. It was a work that was a, a sign that a new era in redemptive history, in God's working through history to save spiritually lost people, to redeem them and bring them back to himself, a new era had begun, and God provided a sign of that. As we read about that, we noticed that as a result of, of that sign being given, the scripture taught us Peter the apostle had an opportunity to tell a very large crowd of people about Jesus. And amazingly, that resulted in about 3,000 people, the scripture says, about 3,000 people on that one day turning to put their faith in Jesus, to receive uh, his salvation that he offers to all, to make him the Lord of their lives. They were baptized as a, de- a declaration of their trust in Jesus, their allegiance to Jesus. They came together then along with, oh, just the first 120, because that's, only, that's the, the size of the first church. It was only 120, but, but they joined that 120 and became part of the first church of Jesus Christ. And so on that day uh, of Pentecost, that, that church became 3,120 in size. It had, it had multiplied 26 times in number. And here in chapter 3, we actually read of something similar happening. It's given as another example of what God was doing in that particular time in that particular place. Something similar happens again, not long after what we read about in, in chapter 2. And uh, here's, uh, here's what what, uh, what Luke tells us about that day. Luke, same author as the Gospel of Luke, is the recorder of history in the book of Acts. So I'm going to begin at uh, chapter 3, verse 1 here. I'm reading out of my New American Standard translation. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. The, the gate was called Beautiful, not the temple in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. This is how he got food. This is how he got money. He had no way of making a living. So his family or friends took him. They they left him at the temple gate. He would beg for money. Good place to beg. People going there into the temple would have offerings with them. Good place to be. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Some of you can rehearse that song, that children's song in your mind. You know it. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were, asked, or they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. 
But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one in whom you delivered, the one, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter goes on further from there in his uh, message that day to the crowd that was listening to him. We're not going to go any further than that uh, this morning. Uh, we'll just point out that, that uh, as Peter goes on, he does continue to explain Jesus. And he continues to do that very logically and clearly. And there's a lot of people listening very intently until guess what happens? Some authorities show up and they arrest Peter. They have in their mind that, that Peter is, uh, is a, a troublemaker, that he is uh, um, agitating the population, he's disturbing the peace, and so, so they haul Peter away. We'll read more on that a, another time. For now, all we need to know about, about this uh, at this point is what Luke tells us. I can tell you later on, Luke explains, even though Peter was unable to finish his message, there were many in the crowd who nevertheless had heard enough, and they responded positively that day. They put their faith in Jesus and joined the church in Jerusalem that day after being baptized. The result being, we're told in the early part of uh, chapter 4, the result being that by the time that got finished, the total number of members of the Jerusalem church had already grown to about 5,000 in number. That doesn't mean necessarily that 2,000 more were added that day, but adding the the large number that came into the church at that moment, they had grown to 5,000 by the end of, of that very day. Actually, maybe even more because in Acts 4, it says there were 5,000 uh, men who were part of the church at that day. And, and the word men appears very, very uh, significantly. It's almost as if they're saying that was just the men alone. We didn't even count the, the women and children alongside that that could be added to it. Now, what we see here is that whatever the count was, clearly the, the church was growing in an amazing way, numerically. Behind it all, of course, was who? The Holy Spirit sent by Jesus who is now directing his church from the right hand of the throne of God. And the Holy Spirit, on the one hand at this time, was enabling Peter and the other apostles and the other members of the church to tell about Christ effectively. And then on, on the other hand, they were, they were working, the Spirit was working in the hearts and minds of the, of the people in Jerusalem, convincing them about Jesus, drawing them to faith when they heard about him. The, the setting was very prepared for this. It was the perfect timing. God had connected all the dots to this point for the word of God to go out and for many people to come to him. It was a very special time when God was doing this special work in Jerusalem. And we admire it. We think, wow, what a great time. We'd love to be in that time. We, we kind of wonder, could that ever happen again? Would it ever happen again? And the answer, of course, is yes. I mean, you can look around at, at evangelists like Previous, uh, you know, my, my parents and my generation, Billy Graham, now, now those who, who serve along with him, his son is out evangelizing. You see times when, when maybe they go to a foreign country, they go to a certain region, they, they have a, a conference, they have a, a, a meeting in a stadium, and many people come to the Lord. So, so we know that even that happens. But, but, but could it ever happen again where we are, in, in our place? Like they, they were in Jerusalem, that was their city. Could something like that ever, ever happen again? And the answer, of course, is yes. Now, no, it's not going to happen in exactly the same way. God using exactly the same means. That was a unique time, place, thing that God was doing. But God still does unique uh, things in other times and places among other people. 
and we know this can happen. Jesus is still Lord. We know that. His church is still here on earth. We're part of it. The Holy Spirit is still in us and with us, just as he was with the Christians of that day. The commission that God gave his church to go and make disciples, well, that's still in place. That means that God is still behind that ministry. People are still coming to Christ daily. Sometimes they come in large batches. Sometimes they come in small batches. Sometimes one at a time. But even in places where it seems unlikely that people would, would, uh, would never come to Christ or, or unlikely that people would come to Christ, it still happens. But our thought is, is, is often this. We kind of doubt it wherever we live. But we live in Corvallis. If you live somewhere else, you, you probably have the tendency to, to think the same thing. Well, it, it wouldn't happen here, though. It wouldn't happen here. It wouldn't happen in relation to us at all. We, we just don't have the ability to be that effective in outreach to others. And, and God doesn't really do things like that in places like this. And one of the reasons why we're kind of doubtful, especially about our ability to be involved in it, is that we think we're at a great disadvantage compared to that first Jerusalem church. The, the disadvantage that we think we have, <coughs> excuse me, is, is that we don't have the miracles going on right here and now that the apostles and the other early members of the church had in their time. Go back into Acts chapter 2, verse 43. It says, you know, not just on that one day of Pentecost, but, but uh, that God kept working through the apostles. And sometimes there were, there were uh, wonders being accomplished. In other words, God was still doing some miraculous things even through them. Christ was working through them. And we think, you know, well, if we had that, we could do really great outreach too. And our impact would, would be much greater if, if we just had that. And we start wondering, well, why doesn't God just give that to us? If God really wants people to be saved, why doesn't he just give our church the day, uh, today the ability to do some spectacular miracles and then say people here in Corvallis and Benton County, most of them, if they saw that, well, they would be convinced and they would turn to the Lord. And they, would, they would become followers of Jesus if we only had that. But you know what we, what we know from Scripture? Jesus himself disproved that that that's not going to happen, not likely to happen. The thought is, you know, miracles always lead to, to massive numbers of people turning to God. But Jesus did more miracles than anyone. And he did the most spectacular miracles ever in view of many, many witnesses. But even so, a great number of those who witnessed those miracles either still did not believe in Jesus at all as the Messiah, the Son of God, or they did believe, but the Scripture says they still chose to reject Jesus and not follow him. That's why when you read about the, the church in Jerusalem at that time, it says there were only about 120 Christians gathered in the city of Jerusalem. We figure there were, were probably more up in Galilee where Jesus had ministered so often, but he didn't have a huge church when he was on earth. His miracles didn't, didn't make an impact because there were people who because of pride, who because of their love of a sinful life, who because they were hard-hearted or determined that they weren't going to submit to anyone in, in their life, they just didn't come to Jesus, even though they knew he was doing miracles. We read in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, that, that Jesus challenged some of the doubters sometimes because, you know, he looked different than they anticipated the Messiah was going to be. And he said, well, but, but you know, you can look at my works, you can look at my deeds, you can look at the miraculous, and you can have evidence that, that God is at work in me, that, that I am the Messiah that God has promised. Still, they didn't believe. You can go to John chapter 10, you can go to John chapter 15 and just read over and over how, how there were those who admitted his miracles. They, they themselves said that was amazing. They thought it was spectacular what he did and still they resisted him. Some of them, even knowing his miracles, decided we'd rather put him to death than follow him. John chapter 3 says they loved the darkness rather than the light. 
And so they rejected Jesus. We know once Jesus, you know, uh, was, was at a place where people said, we want you to be king. We like this. We like what we see in you, Jesus. We want you to be king. Jesus then made it clear he wasn't in line with their political agenda. And immediately they turned away from him and went away. We read of another time where Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. And uh, he went in an area that was not as religious, didn't have the sort of Hebrew background that, that he did on the other side of the, of the lake. But, uh, but as he got there, he healed a, a demon-possessed man, a well-known man who was a troublemaker, truly demon-possessed, a troublemaker in that whole, whole region. And he heals the guy, and the guy turns up with a changed life. And you know what the people of the, of the, uh, did at that point? They said, Jesus, go away. Get out of here. Why? Because in the process of that happening, there had been a little disturbance of the peace. And they said, yeah, we, we don't want any disturbers of the peace here, Jesus. Go away. So you see that the miracles aren't going to be the solution. They're not going to be the solution to, the, to, the, to the, the way of winning people to Christ. A lot of people who can be amazed, that's what you read in Scripture. A lot of people amazed, not that many that, that say, well, based on that amazement, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. So why did Jesus do miracles anyway? Why is he still doing them then through the apostles? Well, we need to remember that the Bible tells us that, that many of these miracles, especially what we're reading in Acts, were miracles that were done as signs. You actually see that in the Gospel of John. It describes Jesus' miracles as signs. Signs that, uh, meaning that they were attesting miracles. They were, they were miracles of proof. They were miracles of, of proof of the powerful presence of God in that particular situation. They were proof that what was happening was part of God's plan. They were proof that the people involved there uh, on God's behalf were special servants of God that had been sent from God. They were signs that what was going on was revealing truth about God that people needed to know about and pay attention to and apply to their life. And that's why we typically, when we read in the, in the Bible, not just New Testament, but in Old, that these kinds of, of the signs were very prevalent at special moments in, in redemptive history. They were, they were most often at key transitional points in time when God was introducing something new or beginning a new era or beginning to authenticate a word that, uh, that was coming from him, a message to the people. At those times, the, these types of miracles uh, became more prevalent. We see them in the times of Moses and Joshua, for instance. And then we don't see them as, as prevalent for a while, but, but then later on there's another transitional turning point, key time where God is delivering his word to people. The time of Elijah and Elisha, and you see it pop up again. And then you don't see that happening. We don't have records of it happening for a while. But then once again, a little later on in time, in the history. You, you see it in the time of Daniel and his friends as they're in Babylon. And, and then God's doing a great work there. God's even beginning to reveal things about the, the, the very end of, of this world and the end of this age. And God, God affirms and authenticates their message by, by some astounding things. Then we read, of course, the time of Jesus. Jesus' miracles were, were signed. They, they were authenticating him. A lot of these miracles would... would pop up very quickly. And then when, that, when the job was done, when the, when the signs were made, you, you just wouldn't see them happen anymore. They would not turn up again. Not to say that God wasn't still doing miracles. He still answers prayers sometimes. He still uh, you know, answers our prayers for, for healing or you know, for a, a problem, for a victory, whatever we need. And sometimes that's miraculous. But they're not so much the sign type that we're talking about here with a person standing up, doing something dramatic, seeing something incredible as the power of God is unleashed. But this is what was happening in the early days of the first church. 
the, the mother church, so to speak, in Jerusalem. God was authenticating this new era and saying this, this messianic era, this era of the last days of my redeeming people is, is in motion now. God was saying the Holy Spirit that, I, that I've promised to you is now here in power. The church is my, my instrument now for bringing the teachings of Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. And that's being passed on to the apostles. That's what these sign miracles that we read about in the book of Acts were all about. And we need to recognize that because what we want to see is that, that those kinds of, of miracles were never intended to be the norm for evangelism. Sometimes we look at them and maybe you've heard Christians say, well, God wants us to get back to that. We just have to pray for these miracles, have these miracles take place in our midst because this is how God does evangelism. But the presentation of Scripture is these were never for the, the specific purpose of evangelism. For outreach, they may have in, in impacted that in some way, but that wasn't the norm of how people were going to come to know uh, Jesus. God keeps using miracles, as we've said, but, but we just need to recognize that that's not going to be how he works for outreach. But with or without miracles, we know this. God has always been at work, and he's still at work saving the spiritually lost. And today, in this era, he's accomplishing that work through his church, which means he's accomplishing it not through, you know, just organizations, but he's accomplishing it through his people all together. Our part as members of his church are, are to be his witnesses. We know that. He said, you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. He said, go make disciples of all the nations. Our part as members is, is to take up that role to help people know him, understand him, and cross the line into faith in him and allegiance to him. And Jesus was very explicit about that. That's what we are to be about. We're to be his witnesses. And really, that's our number one priority. That's what we have to remember in ministry is that leading people to that spiritual salvation, that's our number one priority. As Peter and John illustrated, even on that day at the temple, when they encountered that, that beggar there who, who had a need, his most immediate need was for money or food because the only way he could get it was if somebody gave it to him. He, he couldn't have a job. And so he begged. That was his most immediate need. Now, his greatest desire, though, was what? That he could be healed somehow. It had been years and years, and he'd never been healed. He probably had lost hope. But that was his greatest desire, that he would have healing in his legs. But we know that what he needed more than, than money and what he needed more than physical healing was he needed a, 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 a relationship with God. He needed spiritual health and spiritual life above everything else. Because that was not only going to change his life in the immediate moment in a, in a more dramatic way than could have ever happened, it was going to matter for eternity. His eternal destiny was, it was wrapped up in his spiritual health. And so that last important need of, of his spiritual health was what the apostles concentrated on. You notice that even as they, they reached down and they raised him up and they did this, this healing, they, they, were, they were concentrating in a, uh, on him in a spiritual way. And this is what God wants us to, to most focus upon as well, the spiritual needs of spiritually lost people, which doesn't mean that we don't, uh, we don't care about people's uh, material or, or, or physical needs, that we don't meet them. Now, you know, maybe you've actually run across some Christians. Maybe you've ever even encountered a church that, that says, we don't do compassion ministry. We don't give money away to poor people. We don't, uh, we don't go help people who are sick. You know, we don't go out in the community and try to, uh, help people to get educated. We don't do anything like that. And, and they'll tell you up front, they'll say the reason is because our primary ministry and what God has called us to is spiritual health. And if we get into this other stuff, it distracts us from taking the good news to other people. 
It distracts us from that. It, it, it uh, diverts our attention. And the next thing you know, everybody's all wrapped up in that. Nobody's, nobody's really reaching out. Some of them are very hard. Some churches are very hard in saying that. We just draw that line. We don't help people that way. That's not our mission. But we know that's not right, don't we, that, that the Christians would do that. It's not exactly right because, because the church does have a responsibility to reach out for the simple reason that what? Jesus said when, when he was asked about the greatest commandment, right? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part two of that command, love your neighbor as yourself. And loving our neighbor as ourself means that we actually meet their needs. It's not just that we bring them the spiritual message, but if they have other needs, we meet those needs too. Jesus taught about that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, didn't he? He taught about that, how, how, who's our neighbor, he said. And in the parable, he illustrated that our neighbor is basically anybody that we come in contact with. And if they have a need, then we meet that need. If we have the ability to do it, then, then we meet that need. Material, physical, whatever it is. That's part of who we are as followers of Jesus because, because God is, is, is that way. God meets those needs. Jesus himself in his miracles that he did, did compassion ministry. And so we are, we are, we are definitely to be involved then in this, uh, in this ministry of compassion. But still, even in this incident recorded, we notice that, that the highest priority of the apostles, even as they ministered, was to make sure that this man came to Jesus. When they reached down to him, what did they say? They said, we, rise up in the name of Jesus. And then when we read on a little later in, in uh, verse 16, the, the, the apostles, as they're talking to the crowd, they're very explicit in saying, this is, Jesus did this miracle, not us, first of all. And they say very explicitly that this came about by faith by faith in the person of Jesus. Implied in that is two things. One, it was their faith in following the command to go and minister to that man. But it was also in that man, there was, there was faith that was somehow in his, in his smallest little bit in his heart. And God used this to, to draw this out and to have this man believe and to come to faith so that he goes walking and leaping and what? Praising God, exalting Jesus in that point. When we see that, we, we realize... You know, even the, even the apostles there, they, they, were, they were saying, what we really need to do is reach out to this man where he is. And that just reminds us of, of our highest priority. You know, our compassion ministry here in this church is great, and, it, and it's right, and it's good, and it serves the purpose of, of also showing people the love of God. And, and that's all connected to our helping people find their spiritual health. But we just have to remember that, that we never want to get to the place where that compassion ministry becomes the end in itself. Or that compassion ministry becomes uh, something that, that we take to a certain point and, and we're kind of satisfied with it. And we say, well, we'll leave the other part of that for somebody else to do. We're not just to provide for people physically and materially or even mentally and emotionally. We're to be passionate about reaching people spiritually. Sometimes there's the possibility that, that we might not do that. Look at this photograph we have from the... From the uh, the tailgater last week that we had out here in our field on a cold, rainy day. So uh, there's Randall. All of us pastors took our turn in the dunk tank. There's Randall sitting there. He was the first one to go in, and, and he's pleading there. I think he's pleading because if you were there when we started off, you'll know that, that the, the trigger for dumping him in the water wasn't quite working correctly. You can see that big button in the middle. You had to hit that with a ball, and that would drop him into the, into the water. Well, the thing is, when, when he went up there, anybody who was basically hitting that canvas 
especially from half up, anywhere on it, was dropping him into the water. This is just going on over and over. And Randall's like, what's going on? Like, what? This is how it's supposed to work. And, and, and everybody's just kind of standing around laughing. And, you know, we're saying, what, what, you know, he's calling for help. Or, yeah, good job, Randall. Stay there, you know. Go on. And what he really needed was somebody to come and, and fix the thing. Because as you can see in that picture on that, that side of it there, that, that canvas is actually not straight up and down. And so that's what was causing it because it was off, off center there you know, that you could hit anywhere on that canvas and the thing would go. Finally, after Randall got out, somebody went up and like straightened the thing up and all the rest of us had a much better time <laughs> than he did out there. But, you know, we don't want to be like those people in a place where it's like, you know, we're giving, we're giving people something, but we're not giving them what they really need. You know, we're all encouraging to Randall, but we weren't giving him the help he really need. The most important thing that could have helped him. The most important thing that can help people is Jesus Christ and knowing them as a as personal Savior. Humans need most forgiveness of their sins by God. They need to come out from under the judgment of God, uh, awaiting all who have sinned. They need to come into a relationship with God. They, they live now in a broken relationship with God. That relationship needs to be healed. They need to be reconciled with God. They need to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and release from the bondage of sin that, that happens in our lives. And, and to have the Spirit come and, and bring a transforming work in our character. That's what people most need. That's what benefits them the most right now and for eternity. And that's what Peter and John were all about that day when they lifted that man up and pointed him to Jesus. Our mission from God is, is to do that very same thing. We are to be servants of God who address that need. And our question, though, is how can we be that effectively? How can we really do that? Can we, can we actually do it effectively? And you know, just by looking at Acts 2 and 3, you begin to understand that the answer is yes, we actually can play a big part in helping people to make that decision to put their faith in Jesus and follow him. We know that because of some reminders here. As we read the end of Acts chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3 here, we get some reminders, some encouragement uh, about this. First of all, in Acts 2, at, at the end of, of the account of Peter speaking about Jesus to a, a large crowd uh, on the day of Pentecost, we read in Acts 2.41, it says, that day there were added about 3,000 souls. There were added about 3,000 souls. And you read that across and you say, that's kind of a funny way to put it, that, you know, people came to know Jesus and entered the church. They were added. And you almost wonder, what did, the, the, what did Luke really mean by that? But then you go a little further and you realize, okay, these 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus. They were baptized. They became part of the church and, and they were added. And, and you go to verse 47, just six verses. And it says, you know what? They weren't added by the apostles. They weren't added by the church members. They were added by Jesus himself. Verse 47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It was the Lord who was, was adding people to his church. What we want to notice here is that the apostles, yes, they preached to crowds. The church members individually spoke to others about their faith. But behind it all, it's God himself who's working. He's directing his church. He's empowering his people. He's working in the hearts of those who are hearing and learning about the gospel. And this is always the way that it works. This is the only way that it works, that God is at work saving people that God takes the lead role in it. He initiates it, and he stays in the lead role the whole time. And he's very effective at doing that. God is always effective at what he does. And so our part is to simply make ourselves available 
to do our part. When we do our part, God works through us and the job gets done. We always need to remember this, that the Lord does the adding. We're effective because, because we're there and he works through us. The filmmaker Woody Allen, he has a famous phrase that's quoted often. He said, 80% of success is just showing up. 80% of success is just being there and doing what I'm talented to do. But, you know, we need to take that to heart ourselves because we say, well, you know, oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. You know, this will never happen. Well, we just need to show up. We just need to show up as, as God's witnesses. We know that God is already at work, but we forget that. We think, oh, this is all on us. It's all on our shoulders. We got to go out here. We got to win these people over. God is the one adding. We just need to show up and be his instruments. The Lord does the adding. And so that's, that's encouragement number one we want to take away when we think about, can we make a difference? The answer is, yeah, we just have to show up because the Lord's working. Encouragement number two we find from, uh, from the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three is this. We can be effective in ministry because of what it says in verse 47 of chapter 2. The Lord was adding to their number day by day, day by day, those who were being saved. There's actually, if you, if you study intensely in this, this text, and you get back into the Greek text, you know, the original Greek, you know, that says the, that, uh, that the Lord was adding. That's a tense of the verb that says he was doing it continually, continually. In other words, the Lord just, just didn't drop in and go, boom, that's it. I'm, okay, I'm done. I'll be back in a month. But the Lord was working day by day, it says there. The Lord was continually adding to the church. And what this tells us is, and what we want to notice is, it lets us know the outreach of the Jerusalem church was not solely dependent upon or based around the performance of miracles or just the preaching of the apostles. Yeah, it's true in verse 43 there of chapter 2. It says the apostles were working those many wonders and signs when God appointed them to do so. But there's no evidence that that was happening every day. But somehow they got up every morning and they went out and, and they just did these incredible miracles. And then this circus-like atmosphere happened. And, you know, hundreds and thousands of people gathered around. They got up and preached. And, and that's how all these people entered the church. No, no those, those special moments were indeed special moments. But God was still working through, through others in the church as well. God always works through his whole church just as we saw in that video, you know, how God connects people together, puts, puts pieces together that we can't put together. God will use different people with different gifts and different roles. He'll use them in different ways. He'll use them in different times and places to accomplish effective outreach. We just need to be ministry uh, or faithful in ministry daily then, available ministry and whatever God puts before us, doing our part, whatever it is, whenever we're able. And by doing that, we know that, that God is going to work through us and we're going to be effective. Then the third little bit of encouragement we have here about can we actually make a difference uh, is, is really this, that, that God works through the visible combined witness of his whole church. God works through the visible combined witness of his whole church. And that's how very often evangelism is effective. You say, what do you mean by that? I don't even get that. The visible combined witness of the church. It means that, that when, when the, the church, meaning us, okay, and every other Christian, when we in our congregations, when, when we come together, when we're in unity, when we're one, when we're one, then we also can become one in witness. When we serve together, when we are visibly uh, the community of Christ, worshiping together, we make a huge positive impact on outreach just from that. The doors open up. The, the moments are created when God can work in, in very special ways. 
When we study at the end of chapter 2 here of Acts, in the beginning of chapter 3, we see this combined witness of the church and how it all worked together for good. We're told there that the attention of the people outside the church in Jerusalem at that time uh, was gained. Their their interest was piqued. Their, Their minds and hearts were open to checking out Jesus because Jesus had become attractive to them. And, they, and Jesus became attractive to them because of that, that combined witness of the whole church together. This is what it says in, in, in Acts 2.47, where it says that combined, because of that combined witness, it says that the, the people of the church, the church was having favor with all the people outside the church. In other words, they had a great reputation. The people looked at him and said, those are special people. Those are good people. Those are people who have something going on that, that's worth looking into. And they liked the, the, the Christians there because they, they could see if through, through not just one or two people, but through the, that visible presence of the church. Remember, by this time it's grown, or well, by Acts 2, there are at least 3,000 of them in town there in Jerusalem. And those 3,000 make a difference because people notice them. No wonder then that, that day by day people were, were continuing to be saved and becoming part of the church. That can still happen if we put forward a combined witness, even if we're small in number. Even if we're small in number. There's a story I read when I was reading a a biography of of Winston Churchill. And uh, I read this long ago. I don't remember all the details of it, but I remember that that early in the first part of the 20th century, that that there was a lot of of unrest in in England. A lot of it had to do with uh, labor issues and labor unions. And and there were a lot of... uh, protests and riots and strikes going on. It was really a very turbulent time. And and during that time, uh, at one point, uh, a mass of humanity that were uh, uh, people, you know, who were angry at the government gathered in London. And it was a lot more people that that showed up than what anybody thought would show up, that anybody prepared for, that they had any any people in place to, uh, to in any way control them. And and they, they began to agitate each other and they became more violent. And at one point, the realization was that they were about to storm parliament. They were about to storm the government buildings and that that there was no way to to stop them. There were not enough soldiers. There were not enough policemen to to get in their way. But but interestingly, there was was one guard, you know, that that sort of ceremonial guard. You know, the guys that wear the, the red suits and the big hats and the swords and they ride on those massive horses. Well, there's only a couple of dozen of them, but they come riding out and just, they just come riding and trotting straight toward this, this mass of humanity. Thousands of people are coming. In the book I read, it said they could have been easily overwhelmed within seconds. But their very presence there, the visibility of, of who they were, just stopped the crowd. The crowd stopped cold and began to mingle around. And they just stayed in place. The crowd eventually turned it and, and went the other way. There was something about just that visible presence of them representing the British government. And it just made the people stop and say, whoa, we can't go any further. Just a small number of people made that difference. And on our side, our visible presence as servants of Jesus Christ, we're probably not going to chase anybody away. Let's hope not, right? But, but that visible presence can make a difference. And we do have a power behind us. It's Jesus Christ. He's going to work through us even if we're small in number. But how do we do it? What are some of the keys? How do, you, how do you be a united church with a united combined witness, a visible witness? You know, right here in Acts 2 and 3, you begin to get this picture. I just want to take a little time to just walk through it 
and say, what can we do? How can we take this and say, okay, this is the way to go? And, and it's interesting. You may hear some unexpected things here in, in what, I, what, I, what we find here in Acts chapter 2. But, it, but it's significant nonetheless. And the first one is this. How do we make this combined visible presence as the church of Jesus Christ? And the first answer is, you ready? Baptism. Baptism. It says here that in Acts 2.38, Peter called those who wanted uh, to put salvation in Jesus to believe in him. He said, repent. And he said, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And Acts 2.41 says, 3,000 were baptized. Now, for us today, that's maybe, you know, doesn't hit us in the same way it, it did in their day. It should, though. But what it really meant in there, that was huge that 3,000 people got baptized. It would have been huge if 30 of them got baptized. Because, you know, the, the Hebrew culture at that time uh, and for centuries before that had viewed baptism as only something for, for real pagans to do when they come out of paganism and start worshiping the one true God. John the Baptist came along and started baptizing people. A baptism of repentance is a sign of their repentance. That was something new. Even then there was a resistance like, well, we don't do baptism. But, but now there's the baptism of Jesus. And these people coming out, they were making a statement by their baptism. Their statement was very, was very simply this. Not that by undergoing this ceremony, I'm suddenly saved, because that just comes through faith. But their statement was, was that right now, I'm, putting, I'm, I'm standing here as a declaration, a public declaration that I have put my faith in Jesus, that my, my allegiance is to him. I'm proclaiming my connection to him. I'm telling you about my seriousness about following Jesus. And you know what? That's something that God wants us to do. We know that. The New Testament teaches very clearly that all who are followers of Jesus need to make this statement uh, of baptism. The Bible doesn't present it as, well, here's an option. If you'd like to do this, it's kind of a fun ceremony. It's very symbolic. The the point of Scripture is this is a public declaration. It's you coming and, and, and humbling yourself because that's what baptism is, right? You're going down in the water. With your clothes on, you're going under the water with somebody there and you're, you're praying. And, and, you know, that's why some people don't want to do it because it's like, well, this is awkward. But, you know, coming to Jesus is part of us humbling ourselves and saying, we're going to do whatever it means to, to, to follow Jesus. And if he wants me to make this public statement, then this is the public statement I make. And so, so that's what baptism is all about. When these uh, first 3,000 members of the church were baptized that day, that was a very visible public statement. They were saying, we are Christ followers. And the people in Jerusalem took note of that. And they looked around and they said, yeah, that guy was baptized. And as more people kept coming into the church, you know, the neighbors were whispering. Did you see that guy? Did you see him, him and his wife? They got, they got baptized the other day. And people knew them by that. They knew that, that these people were serious. In our day, baptism can mean the same thing. It should. That's one of the reasons why we do it still, in obedience to Jesus. When we do it ourselves, when we celebrate the baptism of others, we're combining to make a visible declaration, a visible witness that says, yeah, we all believe this. We all take this seriously. We're all committed to Jesus. That's one symbol of, of, our, of our faith in Jesus that if we do it, if we do it and if we celebrate it and, and if we take it seriously, it lets people know where we stand. Here's a good question to ask. Do people in your life know where you stand? Do they even know you're a Christ follower? Now, there's more ways than baptism for people to know that. But baptism is certainly one of those ways that when you become a believer, that you let other people know. Yeah, I've made a change in my life. I've made a choice in my life to follow Jesus. So we can consider baptism. That's one way that we we build this combined witness. 
But then we go on and, and we see that not just baptism, but behavior becomes part of our combined witness. Our behavior, baptism plus behavior. Acts 2.42 says that the first Christians were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And of course, by that, they're learning about Jesus. They're learning the truth. They're learning theology. But they're also learning very clearly the practical application of that. Because in the apostles' teaching, they were teaching, this is how you live your life as a Christian. Here's God's will. Here's God's way for your life. As they took in the apostles' teaching then, and the Holy Spirit was work, remember at work within them, bringing that transformation, then what was happening? Then they were, they were changing their, in their behavior, in the way they lived. They were, they were beginning to, to, uh, to live life uh, God's way. And, and, you know, the same thing can happen with us if we're willing to submit ourselves, to take the time to learn God's word, to really read the word, to have it explained to us when we need it, to discuss it with others, and, and to be able to, to do that and then, and then begin to live it. And that's what was going on there um, in, in Acts chapter 2 at the end of the, of, of the chapter. We read about this. The same thing happens to us when, when we're willing to commit. We're going to see a change in our life, and people are going to notice, you know what? You used to be angry. You're not angry anymore. You, you used to be a cheater. You used to be an adulterer, whatever. Now you're different. You used to have no peace. Now you have peace. You used to be not generous. Now you're generous. And, and so we realize then that, that the thing to do is, how do we make sure that, that we have this combined witness? Well, then, then make sure you're growing as a Christian. Make sure you're learning. Make sure you're into God's word and that you're letting that word transform your life. When we do that together, when there, is, when there is a number of us together doing that and we're spread throughout the city and people are seeing it and they know we're Christians, that begins to get their attention. That begins to wake them up. That begins to draw them to at least acknowledging the possibility of something good there for them. Third of all, we see in the Jerusalem church that their worship also help them have a combined witness. Their worship also. Acts 2.46 says that day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple. What that means in that day and time and place is that they were going to the temple in Jerusalem every day. They were doing worship there. Uh, They were doing worship as part of the other services that were going on. Uh, They were worshiping in a different way now with, with Jesus as their Savior, but they would still go there. There were times of prayer that happened in the temple. And in fact, uh, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to, literally in the Greek, the prayers. The prayers. Those were the prayers that people came together at the temple to pray together as the sacrifices were being made by the priests during that time. Acts 3.1 there, where we read today, says Peter and John were going up, at the temp- up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So what does that tell us? These early Christians were disciplined in their worship. Not because they believe, well, we have to do this because, you know, God gives us a set of times we have to go and, you know, we need to earn points with God by making sure we do our rituals and that kind of thing. That wasn't why they were going to church, to the temple rather, but they were going because they put God first. And they knew that, that worship of God is good and it's right. It's proper for us to do. And, that, that, and they knew also that, that now they had so much more joy, so much more to be thankful for, so many more things to pray about. So much more freedom to pray than they had in the past. They were happy to, uh, to, to go to worship, but they built that discipline into their life and they kept it up. And you know what? The people in Jerusalem noticed that. They noticed that. They noticed that God really was first in their lives by seeing their commitment to worship. They noticed that their worship was real. It was genuine. There was a lot of just ritualistic worship going on in that day. We couldn't even call it worship. 
There were a lot of ritualistic activities going on that people thought were worship. Yeah, we go, we give the alms to the poor, we put some money in the offering box, we go and we stand before the priest while they're doing the prayer, and we go home. But this was authentic. And this authentic worship where people were joyfully disciplining themselves to, to be in worship together was making an impact. People were looking around and going, wow, they've got something genuine. And they're, they're actually taking time to, to, put, to put God first in their life. And that, that made that real sort of impact. You know, it can still do that today when we put Jesus first in, in our worship. You know, when non-believers see us, we've got to think about this. When non-believers see us putting worship, we say, we worship God. But when they see us putting worship at such a low place in our life, second, third, fourth place, anything else can get in the way and take over our schedule and we go somewhere else and do something else. When they see that, are they saying, wow, those people really have something. Worship is, you know, worship is important to them. God is important to them. No, they figure like, well, they're just kind of like the rest of us. They just sort of like a little religious stuff on their plate as well as the, as the stuff we all already have. But you know, when people know what we're serious about worshiping God, that, that can make an impact. I think about this in Corvallis because you see how many public events are on Sundays, right? I mean, a lot of public events, you know, for adults, children, high schoolers. If you notice, they're held on Sundays and very often Sunday mornings. And that's because the culture we live in, you know, there's not a lot of value of church. But I often wondered, you know, what would happen if, if instead of us all sort of buying into, okay, well, when the event comes along, we bail out on church, what if instead the Christians just didn't participate anymore? Not out of spite or you know, out of some plan to, you know, to overthrow anybody, but just because that's what we do. We put these things first. I don't know what would happen, but I wonder. I wonder what difference that might make. I wonder what impact that might make on some other folks. But our diligence in worship, that seriousness, that's a combined witness of the church that says, you know what? When it's not done ritualistically, not because legalistically I have to do this, but because I, I do it because this is my priority, people will take note. And they'll want to know, what's that all about that makes you do that? Of course, fourth on our list is this, fellowship. Fellowship, which Pastor Josh talked about last week. That, that community that the, the, uh, the, the early church had there, Acts 2, 44 to 46, where it talks about them spending time together, eating meals together, sharing their lives taking care of one another, building up one another. Just, all we have to do here is remember what Jesus said about what happens when you do things like that, when you have that fellowship together, that unity, that love for one another. What, what Jesus said was this before he went to the cross. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Love one another. By this, Jesus said, hear it. By this, Jesus said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's one of the, the values of community. There's so many values of being together in fellowship. But one of the ones that we sometimes overlook is this, that that fellowship we have actually makes that incredible impact on others. And so we want to think about, about making the practice of community a priority for us and realizing when we do that, when we give our time to that, we're also becoming those people who can be instruments of God, of being in the right place, of showing up and having God work. That leads us to the fifth, the last one on the list here that I see here from Acts 2 and 3, and that's this. We learn that, that we form a combined witness by our combined boldness, by our combined boldness. That is that we don't just have, you know, a few, few of us who are bold to be, to be engaging with the, the, the world outside of the church, but we all have that, that boldness. 
that willingness to get out of our safety and comfort of our worship services and Bible study and community groups and, and really be, be engaged with others who don't know Jesus and maybe don't even care to know him at this point. When we get out and we reach out to others, that's when God provides the opportunities, as he did with Peter and John that day while they were on the way to the temple. We have no evidence that, that, uh, that they knew when they were going to the temple that day that God was going to have them meet that man there and, and do that miracle. What, what the, the typical picture is this, that as they moved, God moved them, God directed them. We know the Spirit was very much leading them at that time period as those, the leaders of the church to, to do those, those things, those miracles, those acts. But, but the point to, to realize is this, is as they went there, they did not lose their boldness to say, if, if God is putting us out in the midst of people who need us, we're not going to back off from that. We're, we're not going to back down. They, by faith, by their faith, stepped out and said, if God is leading us here, then he's going to do something. We don't know what he's going to do, but we know he's going to do something. Can't imagine, really, Peter and, and John there, could we, that, that they're just, you know, they're kind of on the way to the temple and... Uh, and you know, what are they thinking? Probably just that they're going to the temple to pray. But then God gives them this, this, this uh, push to go to this one man. And I just can't imagine that they were there going, well, do you think we should? Do we think we shouldn't? You know, by that time, they were experienced enough to know that when God opens a door or God pushes you a direction, go for it. Because God is the one who's adding. So all you, knew, you need to do is, is do whatever God is calling you to do is probably not going to be to reach down to someone who can't walk and, and pull them up out of a, of a wheelchair off the ground and have them healed. But who knows what it's going to be. And so whatever it is that God puts on, on your heart, whatever he leads you to, then don't hold back. Do something because God's going to do something in that. And you might not even see an instantaneous response, but still that God who's behind the scenes is going to be engaged in that altogether. That's the, the combined witness of the church. We have no evidence that the Jerusalem church was, was reckless in their words or deeds, but we do see that they were very bold whenever the opportunity came about to step out like that. Now, imagine if we all were committed to these basic uh, acts, these basic ways of, of living our life, and we lived in, in the way the early church did, what would happen? Well, undoubtedly, God would use that for great good in ways that, that we could not possibly imagine. He's going to take that and he's going to work that in, in a way that he only can. We just need to make sure that, that we're living that life out there, that we're living that life and that, that, that God is being able to be shown through us. There's a saying that, that Christianity isn't about the stands we take, it's about the life we live. And you know, we get an election time like this, and yes, we should all vote, we should all take stands. But you know what? Our stands don't win anybody to Jesus. And, and we, sometimes we put an emphasis on, you know, what I do with my life is I make my stands for Jesus. You know, and we plant the flag and we hold our ground and we argue our cause. But you know what? That doesn't win people to Jesus. What wins people to Jesus is, is, is how we live our lives for Jesus. People's minds are changed through observation, or are, are changed through observation, not argument, is the old saying. You know, we're not going to argue anybody into, into the faith, but as they see our faith, they will come. There's a story I remember from years back. I remember a lot of the details. I remember it, it was in Chicago. There was a man named Arthur. And Arthur was 112 years old at the time I, I saw his story in the newspaper. Arthur was 112 years old. The reason his story got in the newspaper is that he was just about to vote in his first election, his first election ever, presidential election. He had never voted in any election before, even though he was an American citizen and could have. And, and someone signed him up 
uh, to vote. And he said, yeah, I'm going to vote this time at age 112 for the very first time. And so the background story to it was this. They went and said, why did you never vote? You know, and they thought, well, he's going to have some religious principle or this or that. And he said, I was just always busy. I raised a family, had a business of my own. I was just always busy. Even had politicians who regularly frequented his business. He still never voted. And so the, the, the question to be asked was, well, then why now? He said, somebody came by and asked me if I wanted to register. That's all it took. Somebody came by and simply asked. And he said, so I signed up and I'm going to vote. That's all it took. Now, you can blame him if you want for, for not being more proactive. But the point is not to concentrate on that side of the story, but just to understand this. You know, there's a lot of people out there who, who are very needy. And God is working to add them. And they just need some people to show up and talk to them and introduce them and, and ask them and, and bring them to God. They just need us. They just need us to have that willingness and to have that lifestyle. What would happen if we had that? What would happen if, if you began to live that today? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? God would begin to do things, some of which you could see, some of which you couldn't see, but the links would all be there. And someday in heaven, you're going to see all the connections that were made because you did. Isn't that the better way to go? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful that you have you connected people to us. You drew us to yourself. We're thankful, Lord, that, that you did great works in our lives, Lord, even if we couldn't see them or know how all the dots were connected, that you did some incredible things. We're excited, Lord, that that happened to us, but we want to be excited too that that's happening through us as you work through us. Lord, so, so first of all, I pray today for us. I pray, Father, that we would have that, that sense of where we fit in your plan and how the burden is not all on our shoulders. That we have a role to play and we do need to own that role, but, but we can take it joyfully and happily and, and with confidence and, and with optimism because you're the one that's adding souls to your kingdom, to your church, to your people. So Lord, help us to think through these things we've seen in the early church today. To, to, to think through these and, and how we can, Lord, raise up a combined witness to you. Lord, we want to be visible, not invisible. We don't want people to have to go out of their way to discover that we're Christians. We don't want them to have to go out of their way to see how we live our lives. Lord, we want that to be on display, not for, for, for our glory or our gain, but for what you'll do through it all. So Lord, as we sing these songs now, this is what we're saying. Work in our hearts and lives. Help us live this out this week in a very powerful way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.